Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. It's the 27th of April, 2022. This is Mornings with Carmen on Faith Radio. I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thank you for including me in your day. I count it a total privilege that we get to spend time together. So thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, Where in the word are you today? In terms of the world, I am going to head out to um, Amarillo, Texas. So appreciate your travel mercy prayers um, as I go and, you know, prayers upon my family as I leave them for a day and a half. Um, I'm still going to be with you. Don't worry. We're going to broadcast remotely, which you don't really care because you don't know where I am anyway. So uh, what we care about is where in the word we are, right? Where in the world could be anywhere. Where in the word are you today? What's God showing you about himself? What is he um, helping you see about him. Like, that's what matters most. Like, in all the world, what matters most is how you understand God, who you understand him to be. And God in his grace has revealed himself so that we can know who he is and we can know him. So I am, uh, in terms of answer to the first question, where in the word are you today? I am lingering in John chapter 12. I'm, I'm just lingering there. Uh, the triumphal entry is the is the passage where you know God has stalled me out for a few weeks, uh, which you know anytime I I find myself just thinking there's more there to plumb, like there's more there, there's more there to discover. I want to dig a little deeper. I want to peel back another layer. I want to know more. Then I just linger. I just linger. It doesn't matter what my reading plan says. It matters what God is leading me to do by his spirit. And if there's another layer to dig into there, then um, then I want to linger right there and dig. So I'm lingering in John chapter 12. I wonder where in the word you are today. You can let me know on the text line, 877-933-2484. As I've been um, lingering in John chapter 12, you know, this is the triumphal entry passage. There's more in John chapter 12 than that, but that's the that's the portion of the text where um, I'm just digging around. Uh, I've been considering what I expect from Jesus, who I expect Jesus to be, what I've become convinced Jesus is versus who Jesus really is, the work Jesus really came to accomplish. And what that means, not only for my life and my marriage, my family, my work, our nation, where I live, the world at this moment in time, but what it means that Jesus is and that Jesus is who the Bible says he is. And coming to realize that the gospel, small g, uh, in which, you know, many of us came to believe, but in, a, in some sort of like pared down version that the gospel capital G is really, really big and really big news. 
And that, yes, Jesus died for each and every one of us, but that's a reduction of the gospel. Um, because what happens on the hill called Calvary at a point in time in human history creates a hinge that changes everything. The once for all Savior of the whole world who put on human flesh and condescended into human frailty and subjected himself to the most excruciating of deaths to do what? To accomplish the will of the father that all humanity, indeed all creation would be covered in grace. It's at the cross that the holiness and the love of God kiss and grace is produced. Peace on earth becomes possible and everything changes forever. Everything changes forever. What difference does Easter make? I think that's the conversation I want to have today. What difference does Easter make? Easter isn't just a day uh, on the calendar. Easter is not just the 40 days in between the resurrection of Jesus and his ascension into heaven. Easter is more than a season. It's more than we make it out to be. It's a worldview and it is a way of life. So that's what we're going to talk with Daryl Crouch about today. What difference does Easter make and what does it mean to live as Easter people every single day? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Pastor Daryl Crouch is back. You know him from his Crosstide blog at crosstide.org. He also has a Substack. You can find him, darylcrouch.substack.com. He heads up an organization called Everyone's Wilson. Pastor, welcome back. Well, great to be with you, Carmen. Good morning. Good morning. All right, Easter. For many people, Easter has come and gone, right? It was a date on the calendar. There uh, were, you know, new plaid uh, shirts for the men. Um, the women wore dresses and children carried baskets. But, you know, that has come and gone. And we have put all of those uh, accoutrements back in the storage unit for another year. I want to talk with you about Easter as more than a day um, or even a season. I want to talk about living as Easter people. So let's just start with Easter as an event. What difference does Easter make? Hope. Uh, it really is hope. And uh, we're Easter people. I love that. We're resurrection people. And so uh, I think about the the moments um, after the disciples uh, started to realize that Jesus was alive, that he wasn't in the tomb and he wasn't in there because someone had stolen him. But uh, he began to appear to them. He began to uh, share with them. Uh, there was Peter who uh, was restored, you know, uh, over breakfast there on the shore. And uh, so there's forgiveness. There's um, restoration. Uh, we're a people who do not despair. Uh, we're a people who uh, do not cross our fingers and hope it's going to work out. We we are a resurrection people who who have a hope about us. And so there's um, uh, there there's this um, and it's more than sentimental, Carmen. I think sometimes all that you described as uh, a lot of uh, a lot of us in the, here in the maybe in the South, I'm not sure how, how it goes around the world, but 
uh, where we dress up or uh, do some things differently on Easter Sunday. But, but um, you know, um, even when we dress up, um, there, there can be this and, and celebrate certain events. There, there can be this underlying um, sense of, is this real? Is this just um, a tradition? And is there a real connection with anything in reality about this? And, and I think what we find in the empty tomb is that Jesus really is alive. And because he's a, because he lives, I can face the future. And there is um, a, a resurrection reality that changes everything that I'm about and changes my my sense of purpose and how long um, the, the 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 efforts that I make today and the, the things I do for on on for the sake of Christ um, they last forever and that they have an eternal impact and so so I think hope. Uh, is where I begin. Um, and then, um, you know, I think about Peter a lot in this whole story of his uh, forgiveness and restoration and um, the sense of lordship. Uh, you know, he called Jesus Lord. Yes, Lord, I, you know I love you. And um, as Jesus people, uh, we, uh, we live under his lordship. And um, that's not an oppressive thing. That's, that's freedom. And uh, so it really does change the reality of our lives uh, going forward. So let's um, um, let's consider when we come back um, Easter as a worldview, because it's one thing to say Jesus or Jesus changes everything. Easter changes everything. The empty tomb, it, it changes the range of possibilities. It, mm-hmm. it, it explodes, um, you know, the categories of thinking in terms of what is possible. Um, and and what's possible not only for me as an individual, but what's what's possible um, it, it, for the world and everything in it. That's a worldview conversation. So let's have an Easter worldview conversation. We're talking with Pastor Daryl Crouch. We're talking about Easter, not just a day on the calendar, not even just a 40-day season between the resurrection and the ascension um, of Christ, but living as Easter people. What, what does it mean to live in view of the resurrection of Jesus Christ as a reality, um, as a worldview, as a way of life. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Who is this Jesus who lived among us full of grace and truth and took on the cross on our behalf and then rose from the dead. Who is this that calms storms and walks on water and feeds thousands with a boy's lunch and heals the sick and gives sight to the blind and speaks with authority to the authorities of the day and prays in private but teaches in public and eats with sinners and raises the dead and rose from the dead himself? Who is this Jesus? And what difference does his resurrection make in our lives today? Easter, not just as a day or a season, but Easter as the lens through which we view everything else. We're talking with Pastor Daryl Crouch today about Easter as a worldview. When I say that, Daryl, that Easter is a worldview, um, what comes to mind? Yeah, I love all that. You did great with that, by the way, Carmen. That's awesome. 
um, I, you know, it really reframes uh, our entire lives. So worldview is a framework for which, from which we, uh, through which we see the world, a lens, for, for example. And um, for so many of us, and, and maybe it's our, it, I think it is our sin nature, but we've also been encouraged, uh, particularly in this particular season of, uh, in our, in, in history, uh, to to really become very self-centered and self-oriented. The word now is autonomous. We we are encouraged to think of ourselves, um, you know, as independent of everything else, and that we're the kind of the center of of it all. And and the resurrection really reframes all of that. And by the way, as as autonomous as we're trying to become, we're all also. And statistics show us this: that we're more depressed and more despairing than ever before. And so, and more lonely. And so, independence and autonomy do not come without consequence. And so, we we're being encouraged to be who we want to be, and yet um, the results of that are just devastating. Uh, the resurrection changes all of that, reframes our perspective from uh, autonomy and self-centeredness and independence to uh, Christ being Christ-centric, and that He is Lord of all. He is. God, the Son of God, the the incarnate God of the universe. He holds all things together by the power of His might. And um, of course, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, he walks through this reframing. If then Christ has been raised from the dead, then this is the way it, it looks. And because Jesus has risen from the dead, therefore we will think this way and live this way. And so it really does reframe our perspective. And, um, and when we reframe our perspective and Jesus becomes the center of our world, then uh, everything else changes as well. And we become, again, people of hope. We become people who are believing people. We're, we're not filled with anxiety. We're not filled with uh, worry about the future. We're not lonely. We, are, we have been united with Christ, and we are united with others who are united with Christ. Uh, there is a sense of um, my purpose is the glory of God. Therefore, I will live my life and contend for the faith in such a way that points people to Jesus who will find their satisfaction in him. And so it really takes the pressure off me being the Lord of my life. And uh, because Jesus has already taken on that weight and won the victory over sin, death, and the grave. And so uh, it's really about a reframing that I think sets us free. Well, I know it does, but it sets us free, Carmen, and it gives us a purpose that is well beyond ourselves. I, I've been taking um, fast and furious notes. I love, um, I love the language of what happens when Jesus becomes the center of our world. First of all, mm-hmm. like that just suddenly reorients everything. Like I, I know it. Like, I know I'm insufficient. I can't, the, the world cannot revolve around me. I'm just insufficient to bear the weight of all of that. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't have the power of life and death. I don't, as much as, you know, I might imagine that I would want to, as soon as I even consider that thought, I'm terrified by it. I don't, I don't possess enough within myself. Um, I'm, I'm just insufficient to that. But Jesus is fully sufficient for all of that. I mean, he is the creator of all that is, um, and he's as a point of reference and and reorientation of life. Like Jesus is it, 
And that's the conversation we're trying to have today. What does it look like to not just see Easter as a date on the calendar, but to open your eyes and your heart to the reality that Easter is the framework, the reference point and the framework for not only a restored relationship with God and the, you know, and the promise and possibility of eternal life with him. Yes, yes. Um, Yet, you know, though we die, yet shall we live because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But more than that, more than that, it's purpose and it's um, a frame of reference for life. It's uh, it's understanding who we are and the rest of the world and everything in it. Like Easter really does change everything. It really does. And we all have a faith. You know, we all have a faith orientation. I, I heard someone say a few few weeks ago, we're all theologians. We, no matter what our faith perspective is. Uh, but Paul said, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Uh, all faiths are empty. Uh, if they're not rooted in the risen Christ, uh, because they're they're spurious, uh, they're they're uh, subjective, they're um, based on uh, unmet promises, and uh, but Christ has kept His promise. He has conquered the the grave. He has risen from the dead, and He is seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. And He is working in such a way to bring about the consummation of all things. And uh, we will be restored to him fully. And so there, we're, we're already, we have this living hope, as Peter called it. And um, uh, all other uh, ground is sinking, is sinking sand. And, and I, I think uh, for us to, to reorient around a, um, a Christ who has kept his promise uh, really does change everything. Let's talk about that word reorientation for just a minute. Um, we we live in a culture that is very disoriented. Um, people casting about in in shadows and darkness and fog, um, because and disorientation then leads to great confusion. And I think it leads not only to the harm of self but to the harm of others because we literally don't know who we are or what we're doing, um, and we're we find ourselves in a in a dark panic, um, and we see the results of that in, you know, in, in relationships um, and in the culture. Talk about reorientation. Talk about not only coming, coming to that place where you come to yourself, but you come to that moment of reality where, oh, my God, God is. And, oh, my God, the cross is real. And, oh, my God, so, too, is the resurrection. Talk about that, that reorientation and then what follows from that moment when, when the, uh, the scales fall off our eyes? Yeah, well, you just referenced it. I was, as you were asked, framing the question, I was thinking about Paul or Saul on the road to Damascus and that reorientation that took place. He was, he was very familiar with religious things. He was very familiar with the story of God. He was very familiar with uh, a lot of, um, you know, social uh, norms of the day. But when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, the scales did fall off his eyes eventually uh, there uh, a day or so later. And but he was um, he was changed and um, he didn't throw away all that he knew, but all that he knew uh, was put in perspective. And there was repentance in his heart. There was a there was a heart change. And I think um, sometimes 
we um, we we want people to act differently, and that's important. But uh, that's a that's a that's an effect, or that's a consequence of a heart change. And so, um, I think for us to come to our senses again, the prodigal son coming home, he he uh, found himself in this pig pig pen, and he came to his senses and he returned to the father. There is this heart change that takes place first, and then there is this um, this movement back to God. And so I think for for us, um, there has to be an aha moment that says, you know, I've been chasing after uh, things that do not add up. And I've been very self-centered, and I've been very steeped in my culture, and I've uh, created a God uh, out of the culture in which I was raised or in the culture that I've created for myself. And that has become my idol, the idol of my heart. And now Jesus is my Lord. And I cast away those idols and I follow him. And um, this reorientation or this repentance is really the, um, um, the turning point in our lives. And then we yield ourselves to the Lordship of Christ, just as Paul did um, just as the disciples did, just as every convert in the New Testament we see, they, re, they uh, reoriented their lives under the lordship of Christ, and they became uh, really slaves to his word. And that I know that can be over, overdone, but there's freedom in that, that uh, we become constrained by the word of God. And um, it, it, it becomes the framework for which we live our lives. So good. It's so good. Thank you, as always, for helping us um, consider how the, you know, the living Word of God can actually become the Word we live. Um, and so I uh, look forward to continuing this conversation in the weeks ahead. That's Daryl Crouch. He heads up an organization called Everyone's Wilson. You can also find him. He's got a substack, DarylCrouch.substack.com. Daryl, as always, thank you so much. You're doing great. Thank you. It's an honor to be with yeah. you. Likewise. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. This is Faith Radio. Come awake, come and rise up from the grave. This is a new day. Everything bursting with hope. Come on alive. All righty. Uh, where do you turn to get... Um, you know, a worldview viewpoint, a Christian worldview viewpoint on the matters of the day. One of the places that I turn is the Denison Forum. You can find it at denisonforum.org. Every single day, um, Jim Denison posts a uh, a daily article, but there's also great commentary on here as well. Ryan Denison's got a piece up today, Why the Russian Orthodox Church Deems the War on Ukraine, Quote, a Holy Struggle. Jim Dennison's got a piece up today about Elon Musk and his purchase of Twitter and whether or not that is good news for free speech. Jim's going to join us next. We're going to talk about a range of topics and subjects. And I'm going to ask him, actually, tomorrow we're going to have Carl Truman on to talk about uh, his new book, which is really like a condensed Reader's Digest for the Rest of Us version um, of his prior book, uh, but Strange New World is also something that uh, that Jim Dennison has read and has written a review of at the Dennison Forum. So I'm going to ask him what I should ask Carl. Yep, all of that up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Come and the 
joining us again, Jim Dennison from the Dennison Forum. You can find everything we're talking about today at denisonforum.org. Jim, welcome back. Carmen, good to be on with you today. How are you? I am. I am well. Uh, you know, I'm living on this side of the resurrection of Jesus, and somehow in the Easter season, I feel more free to talk about it, and, you know, that makes me happy. As, as it should all of us. Every day should be Easter, right? He has That's risen ex- again. He is risen indeed. Amen. Yeah. Um, so we, we try to bring the mind of Christ to bear on the issues of the day. Um, I have already uh, reminded everybody to check out what's posted at Denison Forum. I think mm. that Ryan's piece on why the Russian Orthodox Church deems the war on Ukraine a holy struggle, I thought Ryan did a really excellent job in that. Mm. You've got a piece today about Elon Musk and the purchase of Twitter, um, uh Good news for free speech or not? Um, again, uh, excellent, excellent commentary on um, on those headlines. I'm wondering if we can reach back just slightly and talk about a couple of other um, items that have taken place in the last few days that uh, we haven't discussed yet here on the show. And one of them is the election, re-election of Emmanuel Macron in France. Um, why does that matter? Yeah, it's a great question. Here we are in America. Why are we caring so much what happens in France, right? But there are two or three issues that relate directly to us as Americans. One of them is that we have this unified front relative to Russia and Ukraine in which France plays a critical role in Europe. Well, if Marine Le Pen had been elected instead of Emmanuel Macron, she'd already made it clear that she wanted to really pull France back from a lot of that. She was questioning France's NATO relationships, really questioning whether they ought to be engaged in this thing on any significant level. So that could have been a major step back in the united front that we're trying to bring together as we're trying to support Ukraine in some way. But the other piece of it that's really kind of interesting to me is the degree to which the initial way that the media covered his election was, see, we've got a moderate defeating a radical, we've got a step for continuity, all that sort of thing. Really, once you get behind it, you discover that's not really true at all, that France is a deeply divided culture, that he was elected more as the lesser of two evils, that he was elected really despite a lot of the unpopularity of his previous regime there. And so really, once you get behind it, you understand that there's as much divisiveness in France as there is in the United States. The fact they re-elected their president doesn't necessarily mean that they don't need to step forward toward the grace that only Jesus can offer and the unity we find only in the gospel. You um, you make reference in today's um, daily article, uh, you make reference to this sort of larger conversation that we ought to be having in the culture, whether we're having it or not, about our besetting sins. Um, and you talk a little bit about religion and morality as in, indispensable supports of of the American democracy. Can you touch on that? Because that is a really helpful thing for us to be thinking about. I think it is, actually. And it's a piece that uh, David French talked about recently. I've talked about it for many, many years. I really do believe that democracy requires morality. But morality requires a relationship with God that we need that otherwise makes morality really questionable and therefore democracy in question. Uh, Plato some years ago said democracy, obviously, said democracy would never work. He said that citizens would inevitably discover they could cast ballots based on personal preference rather than the collective good and democracy would be imperiled. Well, the founding fathers understood that. That's why John Adams, in this letter to the militia in uh, Massachusetts in 1798, said our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people, wholly inadequate to the government of any other. George Washington, in his farewell address, 1796, said of all the dispositions and habits that lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. 
The bottom line is that the Constitution and our American uh, legal system can restrict and punish immorality, but it can't prevent it. If somebody wants to slander me or steal from me, they can do that probably. The system could help me redress that, punish them for their crimes, but it can't change the character that enabled such immorality. For that, we need a morality that our Constitution cannot create, and that morality requires, as the founders believed, a connection with God through religion. That's essential to our democracy, and it's really imperiled as we see our culture today. So, um, Jim, my Jim, uh, my husband and I were talking about this last night, and he made this, uh, this observation uh, that in our culture, we seem to want the fruits and the fruitfulness. We want the prosperity. We want the, um, you know, we want the good things, quote unquote. Um, we want the good life, but we don't any longer as a culture um, have a, a deep rootedness in the things of the faith. And we, many people don't have any connection to the tree or the vine at all. Um, can you talk about this, like, cultural desire for the good things, but without any connection to the one who actually defines what that which is good. Like, that's where it feels we like we are, this just incredible disconnect from the tree and its roots, and yet we want the fruits. I think Jim's exactly right. First of all, he's well-named. But in addition, <laughs> I really do believe that he's onto something, that we're really at a place now. And I'm not suggesting the Founding Fathers were all godly evangelical Baptist deacons, not saying that at all. But they did work within a biblical construct that said we hold these truths to be self-evident. All men are created equal, endowed by their creator, with certain inalienable rights, among which are life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. That's a biblical construct. Well, now here we are these centuries later, living out the results of that, but not wanting the source of it. It's as though we climbed the ladder and now we're cutting it off. We've climbed out on the branch and we're cutting off the tree. We're at a place now where we don't want the very thing that brought us where we are. My parents used to grieve about that. My father fought in World War II. They both went through the Depression. And they were so concerned, even in their lifetime, about the way America, they felt like, was moving away from the very things that enabled us to be the country that we were. This connection and this commitment to a, an intrinsic morality, to a basic commitment to family, a basic commitment to marriage, basically com commitment to family as the, as the foundational building block of a thriving culture. Well, now we've redefined marriage. We're redefining family. We're really, in many ways, removing the foundation of the house and then wondering why the house is cracking and why, on some levels, it's falling apart. We have really rejected the source for the sake of the fruit as though we can have the fruit without the source. And at the end of the day, that simply is not working and it won't work. All right. All of these are subjects that uh, Jim Dennison addresses in his book, The Coming Tsunami. We have talked about the book on prior occasions here on the program. You can go back and listen to those podcasts, but you can also find a connection to Jim and The Coming Tsunami at denisonforum.org. Um, Jim, let's jump to a recap of the Coach Kennedy arguments before the Supreme Court. We touched on this case earlier in the week, but um, for those you know who've slept since then, what's going on with Coach uh, Joe Kennedy? And you're right. We've all slept since then. And so it's catching up to these things is a challenge. And there's actually some good news here, perhaps. As some of the coverage of the Supreme Court hearing went, it seemed that there perhaps was some sympathy to the coach and to his position and all this. So really, you have to go. It's a really fascinating story. So this person, Joseph Kennedy, served in the Marine Corps for 20 years. He had never coached football. 
On the other side of his military career, he had some friends there in his uh, town outside of Seattle that felt that his leadership capacities would translate well to helping to coach young men in football as a means to building character and building lifestyle. And so when he moved into this as his new calling, he made a commitment to God that whatever happened, win or lose, whatever happened in the game, at the end of the game, he would kneel on the 50-yard line and give glory to God. It's just a commitment he made when he moved into coaching. He was the assistant coach of the varsity, the head coach of the junior varsity. So he started doing that several years ago. Over time, some players asked to join him in doing that. Other players from the other team would ask him, would join in doing that as well. It was never coercive. It was never something he asked anybody to do. It's simply something he was doing that other people chose to join him in doing. Well, over time, his uh, school district told him that what he was doing was violating their rules and he had to stop doing that. He refused to stop doing it, so his contract was not renewed. Well, now he's appealed this. It's been through jurisprudence for several years now. First Liberty, a terrific organization that defends religious freedom. Kelly Shackelford's a friend of mine that is arguing the case, their, their uh, organization arguing the case. It's gotten to the Supreme Court. And there was a hearing this week before the Supreme Court about all of this. On the one side, the critics are saying he's being coercive in using his power and position as a coach to bring religion into the public square. The other side is saying, look, whether he's a coach or not, he has the right to pray, has the right to kneel and pray. And if he loses his case, then as he said in the Wall Street Journal op-ed that he wrote, does that mean that a public Christian can't pray if someone else might see them pray? Is that where we are? And so it's a religious liberty case with enormous implications going forward. The court won't make its decision known until this summer, but at least we're thinking that as the uh, as the uh, case was heard, that there was some sympathy on the court to his position. So we'll see how it turns out. Yeah, it's a fascinating case. I thought that the way that he articulated his position in the Wall Street Journal was fantastic. I think he's carrying himself in public in a very positive way, and I appreciate that as well. We're talking with Jim Dennison from the Dennison Forum. You can find what we're talking about at denisonforum.org. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge, and we'll be right back. You're my defender. We're talking with Jim Dennison from the Denison Forum. You can find what we're talking about at denisonforum.org. Um, uh, Jim, let's let's scroll back and talk a little bit about this Pennsylvania school that said no to the after-school Satan Club. For this, we have great. We can be grateful, can't we? <laughs> Although they're now suing. And it's back in the courts, and we'll see how this ultimately turns out. But it's kind of remarkable. We're even having to talk about this, but it really so, in so many ways, describes kind of where we are as a culture. So this is an atheist group that uh, uh, is moving forward with this uh, on some level, wanting to on, uh, really push against what religious freedom could mean in the culture. And so they've taken on this after-school Satan club that in Pennsylvania wanted to launch uh, essentially a club at an elementary school. The Pennsylvania school board voted down a parent's request to do that. Now they're moving this forward in their atheist groups that are championing the cause and trying to advance this forward as well. And the basic idea is if a Bible club can meet, why can't a Satan club meet? If you have religious liberty, why don't I have religious liberty? Whatever I define religion to be. So far it's good news, but it's being appealed. And we're going to have to see ultimately if the courts decide if one religious group can be there, can anything that calls itself a religious group meet there as well? 
And we're in a post-truth culture that says you have your definition, I have mine. If you call yourself a religion, who am I to say that you're not? And so you can see where this could go. You could see the kind of horrific organizations and causes that could be called religions and therefore could get a foothold in the minds and the lives of our children in our schools as a result of what we're discussing right now. I think it's important for people to, you know, remember and acknowledge that the Supreme Court defines religion with an incredibly broad scope. And sometimes mm-hmm. when we use the term, we think everybody mis- means Christianity and they mean our version of Christianity. Um, but the Supreme Court defines religion very, very broadly, including secular humanism as a religion, which is it's kind of silly on the face of it. But um but right. I mean, like we have to keep in mind just how broad the definition is legally in the United States of America. We do. And there's really good news inside all of that. We don't want the Supreme Court or the IRS coming forward and saying, look, you don't meet our definition of a religion, so you can't be tax exempt or you can't have this or that benefit that a religion is supposed to be to be receiving in our culture. We really don't want them to do that. But on the other side, because they don't do that, because they allow religion to be on some level self-defined, we're now seeing people pushing those edges. On the one side, you get a Freedom From Religion Foundation that wants all religion by any definition, by any manifestation, not to be available on any public space. You see that side. The other side, you see the Satanist groups, and you see people like that. You see Wicca. You see uh, witchcraft groups. uh, You see secular humanist groups that want to be called religions. They want 501c3 tax-exempt status, and they want the same rights to practice in the public square as what we would think of as religions. It's really the two sides of the same coin. On the one side, religion has to be broadly enough defined that it's not intrusive. On the other side, it's so broadly defined that it can be misused. And that's what we find ourselves in this secular culture. All right, Jim. Now I'm um, now this is your book, the book report portion of um, school today. So I don't remember if you remember, like, you know, fourth and fifth grade when you had to go to the front of the classroom and give your book report. Do you remember that? Barely. I was okay. in the fourth grade about 300 years ago, I think. I know. I know. Mrs. Yeah. Kuhn, Dinosaurs I didn't like her. I hope she's not listening. Okay. So, um, but I loved Miss Mabry, who was my fifth grade uh, teacher. So there we go. Let's do the, um, let's do the Carl Truman um, Strange New World book report. He's going to be here tomorrow, and I'm going to get to talk with him about um, his book, Strange New World. You have said about it, it is the best historical explanation of our current cultural crisis that you've ever read. Um, and that while your book, The Coming Tsunami, attempts to explain our present context through a philosophical and biblical lens, Truman does so through the prism of intellectual history. So what should I ask him when he's here tomorrow? Oh, great question. First of all, I'm glad you have him on. He's a huge hero to me and to so many of us. And what he's done is brilliant. The way that he's connected the dots, for instance, to get you from Darwin to Marx to Freud to Reich to the sexual revolution, the way he connects the dots inside all of that. So I think I'd probably ask him two questions. If I had the opportunity to do what you're going to get to do, the first thing would be to ask him, where does he see this going? He says in his book that we're in a place that has no obvious historical precedent. So what's his prediction? How do the dots go forward? Where do we go from here? And you could be specific in the context of so-called sexual liberty, if you wish to, what's now being called sex positivity, which is the latest entry in the euphemism dictionary alongside death with dignity and pro-choice and marriage equality and all of that. So what's his prediction as it goes forward? And then second, what's his prediction for the evangelical church? To what degree are we going to stand biblically or to what degree are we going to on some level compromise culturally? 
Where does he see us going forward? Where does he see evangelical Christians five years from now, 10 years from now? What will our grandkids' world look like in 10 years? Be fascinated to know, because he understands history so well, and history is a great way of understanding the past so you can predict the future. What would his predictions be at that point? In the book, he does say that he doesn't think this is going to perhaps change in a positive way in his lifetime on a level we wish it would. He thinks we're here for a while, and I think he's right about that, short of a great awakening. But I wonder if he could be specific in that context. I think that would be fascinating. Oh, I think that's so helpful. I will definitely ask him. Yeah, thank you. Um, and so let's um, uh, let's look at what you're looking at today. Um, we have been talking about what it means and what it looks like to live as Easter people not not Easter as a day on the calendar or even a 40-day season um, on the church calendar, a liturgical uh, sense of Easter, but Easter as a worldview. If I were to say to you, Jim Dennison, um, how, how do I live out Easter as a worldview? How does it become the lens through which I see and experience um, and then engage with the world? Marvelous question, and really a wonderful way for us to see on the other side of the day we call Easter, the fact that Jesus is risen every single day. Here's the major difference in my heart and soul, Carmen, and this is something that I get away from to my own damage whenever I don't keep this front and center of my life. Jesus is alive. Jesus is as much a living person today, right now, as you and I are. He's just as available to talk with us as you and I having this conversation. He wants to guide us. He wants to empower us. He wants to forgive us. He wants to help us. He wants to heal us. He wants to be just as real in our world as when he was walking in his flesh. Because he's no longer in his flesh, he can be in our flesh. We are now the temple of the Holy Spirit, and we can know Jesus as though we were Peter, James, and John. The mistake we make is we get in this transactional Greco-Roman world where we go to church on Sunday so God will bless us on Monday, where we read the Bible so God will bless our day. We make him a part of our life. We compartmentalize our lives. We check the God box, walk the dog, took out the trash, had my prayer time. Well, Jesus wants to be personal and present and real and the hub into which all the spokes fit. That's the center of the biblical worldview. That's the center of the risen life that Jesus offers us. And I want to encourage everybody hearing me right now now, to make certain that you're close enough to Jesus, that you're experiencing him, that you're feeling his presence, that you're walking with him, that you're praying, that you're connected, that you're close to the risen Jesus himself. He's as close as your next prayer. He's as available as your next breath. Jesus is alive. He's real. And he wants to be real in your life today. That's the incredible good news of Easter. He's real, and he's really risen, and that changes everything. Jim Dennison, thank you, as always, so much for joining us. It delights my heart. Um, listeners love you. Jim in Simsbury, Connecticut, uh, texted in. Um, you're going to like this. Um, Jim is such a, great, um, such a great guest. He's got a lot to say, and he says it. He says, his style of speaking reminds me of a toy I had as a kid. Remember those cars that you would sit on the floor and you would hold it and you would run it on the floor a couple of times to get the wheels spinning as fast as you could and then set them down? That's exactly what he sounds like. There you go, blasting across the room. We love it. Thank you so much. There you go. That's terrific. Thanks so much, my friend. That's our brother, uh, Jim Dennison. You can find him at denisonforum.org. His book is The Coming Tsunami. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. There's always a reason to always choose joy. There's something deeper that the world can't 
love what we get to do together every day here on Mornings with Carmen. Uh, thank you, Paul Perot, for lining up such great guests for us to talk with. No you problem. are you you are really fantastic. Aww. Have we told you that lately? Uh, I know. Yeah, you have. But thank you. Yeah. I mean, Jim Dennison, um, Daryl Crouch. What great conversations today. Um, mm-hmm. What just. I mean, yeah. I mean, I feel so blessed. I feel enriched. I feel encouraged. I feel challenged. I feel called. I feel a um, like it's so wonderful to have brothers in Christ um, out there. Like God's got a lot of really good people. Let's not forget that today. As you consider the challenges that we face in our culture and around the world, let's consider just how many wonderful, good, great, and godly people are out there um, with whom we are connected as a body of believers around the world. I mean, when we take Easter as a worldview, um, one of the things that comes into view is the reality of um, the body of Christ, not just each one of our bodies as temples of the Holy Spirit. That's true. But the body of Christ, uh, every person who belongs to Christ in every place connected together Um, a body of believers, a family, a fellowship. Um, It's just such a blessing. So I'll be praying today for you as a part of the body. You be praying for me today as a part of the body. Um, And let's just be grateful to God on this side of Easter that we have the opportunity to see everything and enter into every relationship and every challenge of the day. Um, with with the framework and the view of Easter, right? It's going to be the lens through which we consider everything and everyone. We got another hour up next. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at myfaithradio.com.